Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody. What a great crowd of people we have this morning. It's awesome to see you guys. Like Kathy said, my name's Elliot. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, what we've been doing, uh, last Sunday we started it, and then we're going to conclude it this Sunday, is we're looking at the final week of Jesus's life. Obviously, today is um, Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of what we know of as Holy Week, the celebration of the final week. But we've spent two weeks looking at this final seven days of Jesus's life. And in doing that, we have seen, we started this last week, but during this final week, there's some of the most vivid images of what it means to love that Jesus gives us in this final seven days. And it, it starts on Good Friday or Palm Sunday, and then we've got Good Friday, and then when Jesus was killed, and then we have Easter Sunday. And if you read through the Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus's life, first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you read through those, what you'll notice is about a third of everything that's written about Jesus's life focuses on this final week. Now, we obviously have an advantage in reading the story because we know what happens on Easter. It's what we're going to celebrate next Sunday. It's that Jesus rose from the grave. He proved that he was God in flesh, proving that he is the only one who can offer forgiveness of sins. He's the only one that can give us eternal life. And we know the ending to the story, and so we miss out on a lot of the drama, a lot of the things that happen throughout the story. But for the disciples and the people in Jerusalem who lived it, this stuff was very real to them. They didn't know how the story was going to end. They didn't know what was going to happen. And so as these things unfolded, they were really shocking. They were real to them. And so then when Jesus comes back and he goes to them and he says, okay, here's this message you have, and I want you to go and I want you to spread this throughout the entire world. I want you to tell people about the good news. When he said that to them, it clicked in their brains. It was, oh, wow, like we saw Jesus do this. We heard him say these things. We witnessed his actions and they realized, okay, well, that's what Jesus did. So this is in turn how we're supposed to live as we go as his messengers. And so what we did last week is we looked at um, love by serving. We looked at an example where Jesus shows love by serving in the final week. And then today, what we're going to do to kind of help us better understand how we're supposed to live, we're going to look at two examples from the final week where Jesus extends forgiveness. So we're going to look at love by forgiving today. Now, forgiveness is kind of an interesting thing. It's one of those things we talk about it. We like the idea of forgiveness, but actually asking somebody, will you forgive me? And then extending forgiveness is becoming increasingly rare in our culture. And this brings up two questions. Why don't we ask for forgiveness? And then why don't we forgive? And in answer to the first question, why don't we ask for forgiveness? Well, if asking for forgiveness, then what we're doing is we're admitting that we were wrong. So in a culture where we're trying to stay guilt-free, we're trying to prove that, no, we're not guilty, asking for forgiveness admits, it requires us to admit that we were guilty. And so what we'll do in the face of anything that we do that's wrong is we'll try, maybe one of our approaches, we'll try to minimize it. We'll say stuff like, well, it was just a little white lie, as if a lie by any other color is suddenly a lot worse. It's still a lie. We still intentionally deceived somebody. We'll minimize it. This is a way that we excuse the wrong. Or another thing that we'll do is we'll justify it. Well, I only did it because dot, dot, dot. And we'll give a reason. Well, everybody else was doing it. So, I mean, that's why I did it. I mean, you know, I just was going with the crowd. You can't hold me accountable for that. So we'll use that as an excuse. One that, um, that I will use from time to time um, is, uh, have you heard of, it's referred to as hangry. It's you're hungry and you're angry 
At the same time, you're hangry. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, good, good. I have some sympathizers in the crowd because we all use this justification. Well, not maybe all of us. There are a few who don't, but I do. So I might get home from work, and I've had a long day, and I, I'm a task-driven person. So if I'm doing a task, I don't even think to eat because I'm so consumed by what I'm doing. So I get home, and I haven't eaten in a few hours, and I could say something rude to my wife. Oh, I'm just hangry. I'm just hangry. No, it's not an excuse. I was still wrong. I was still out of line. I try to excuse it away. I try to justify it with, oh, well, the chemicals in my body are all haywire because I haven't consumed any food. But it doesn't justify the wrong that I committed. Another thing that we'll do is we'll turn it on the other person. Well, I wouldn't have done that if you wouldn't have, dot, dot, dot. This is really your fault because you did that, and because you did that, it made me do this, as if we're just compelled to do wrong because the other person was so out of line. Again, we're, we're justifying the wrong. Really what we're doing is we're just trying to cover up the fact that we're guilty. And if we can do this, see, the thing is, if we ask for forgiveness and admit that we were wrong and say, I was wrong, this is specifically what I did— what, is in, what, what happens is then there's the requirement of us making that wrong right. We have to take responsibility and we have to take actions to right the wrong. And because we want to maintain this kind of facade of innocence so we don't have to do that, well, we just won't ask for forgiveness. And then to the second question of um, why don't we forgive, well, this one could be answered simply by we want justice. I mean, if it's difficult to ask for forgiveness, well, one of the reasons that it's difficult to forgive is because we want there to be justice. If somebody wronged us, well, we want to make sure that they realize that what they did was wrong. We want to make sure that they don't do this again, that they learn and that they, they're punished for what they've done. And so we'll hold on to it. Oftentimes, we'll, we'll kind of become the ones who prosecute the case because there's got to be justice for this injustice that was done to me. And so we'll pursue it and we'll put pressure on them and we'll do different things to manipulate them. Almost, it's like we use the wrong as relational leverage, something to be used to our advantage whenever we want to get them to conform to our desires. So instead of forgiving, getting out of the way and letting it go, we hold on to that. Now, in both instances, whether it's choosing not to ask for forgiveness or choosing not to forgive, simply the reason we do this is because we think it's to our advantage. We think it makes sense. To, it, it does make sense to us. It makes sense to us to live this way and to make these decisions. But what's really fascinating in the final week of Jesus' life is when he models for us forgiveness, what he does is almost like he pulls back the curtain. And when he pulls back the curtain, he's saying, well, this is really how the world works. And because this is how the world works, this is why you need to forgive. Actually, Jesus didn't just forgive the people who praised him and followed him his entire time here on earth. He especially showed love to the people who betrayed him and cried for him to be crucified. Very powerful example that he leaves us. And so what I want to do today to wrap up our look at Jesus' final week is I, I want to look at an example of what Jesus does and also ask the question, why does he do this? So we can kind of get some perspective from it. And then what I want to do in very practical terms, how can we do what Jesus has done? How can we model our lives after the example that he gives us. So that's where we're going to be going um, this morning. If you have your outline, you can follow along as I go through this. The first thing I want to look at is I want to look at the people that followed Jesus around. I want to look at the crowds that were with him during the final week. The final week, it starts on a Sunday, Palm Sunday, and when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, he's riding on a donkey. And it talks about how they're taking these palm branches. It's kind of, because they were a conquered people, the Jews in that time, they couldn't have a flag. And so the palm branch was almost like, this is our citizenship. It was kind of like waving the flag. 
And so they're celebrating him entering, saying, okay, this is the one we choose as king. We're waving our palm branches because we want him to be our king. And they're laying down their jackets in front of him, and he's coming into the city, and they're praising him. They're celebrating him. And then he goes into the temple, and as he's teaching in the temple, what Mark says about that is he says the people were hanging on every word. They couldn't get enough of what he had to say. They were just in awe of how amazing Jesus was, and they were just caught up in the moment of who this guy was. Actually, it goes on, and it talks about how the people who wanted Jesus arrested and killed, the powers of that time, they were afraid to do anything publicly because the crowds liked Jesus so much. They knew if they took action, they would be in trouble because the crowds, he, he had all this favor. But what oftentimes happens with public opinion is it flips almost in an instant. The same crowds that welcomed him, they're now shouting, crucify him on Friday. On Saturday and then, or on Sunday, they're saying, he, we want him to be our king. And then throughout the rest of the week, they're saying, he's amazing. We can't believe all this stuff. He's blowing our minds. We, we love this guy. And then on Friday, all of a sudden, crucify him. The same words that he amazes them with in the temple, they're actually shouting those back at him, mocking him with as he goes to the cross. They're repeating his words, saying, oh, Jesus, you said this. Why can't you do it? They're mocking him. They're laughing at him with the exact same words that they were in awe of just a few days earlier. Actually, in Luke chapter 23, um, we get a glimpse of what the trial was like. And um, this is what it says in the book of Luke, chapter 23, starting in verse 13. It says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, so Pilate, he's the governor. He's kind of over the high court of that period of time, and he's in charge. So he's just had this trial, and he calls the people together. It's the people, it's the chief priests, and it's the rulers. Large crowd. Everybody's there. It's very public. This is what he said to them. He said, you brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. So what he's saying is, this is all public knowledge. You guys witnessed this. You, you know everything that I know. This is your charge that you've brought against him, and I'm looking at all the evidence, and this guy's just flat out not guilty, and everybody knows it. Then he goes on, he says, neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. So what he's saying in bringing up Herod is he's saying there's been two trials, not just one. So two times Jesus has been found innocent. They all know the same facts. He goes on, as you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and then release him. So he's saying, okay, you guys are really upset. This guy's innocent. I'll beat him. If I beat him, then maybe he'll just kind of sink back into the backgrounds, fade into the shadows, and he'll never come up so we won't have this drama anymore. So that's what he's saying. We know he's innocent, but we'll, we'll still beat him. And then this is what they say. With one voice, they cried out, away with this man. In spite of all the facts, it's public knowledge. They all had the same evidence. They came to the same conclusion. This guy's innocent. That's what all the facts point towards. But they still cried out, away with this man. Crucify him. We want him gone. What Pilate says here actually implicates not only himself, because he goes ahead and carries out the order, but everybody else involved in this, because they all have the same information. And that makes it this much more shocking when later in this same chapter, this is what Jesus says when he's hanging on the cross. Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You know, unlike us, we, we can do very little for the injustices done to us. But Jesus, he had legions of angels at his command. He could have called them down from on high and intervened and pulled them out of that situation, but he doesn't. Instead, he's nailed to this cross. He pushes up on his feet that you can imagine how excruciating that would be. He takes a breath. He was struggling to breathe because of the position he's in. He takes a breath, and the words that come out of his mouth are, Father, forgive them. 
amazing. I mean, the people who just a few days earlier are saying, we want you to be king, maybe even hours earlier, you know, because it was maybe on Thursday, they're still saying, we want him to be king. And then on Friday, crucify him. We don't care what the facts are. Get rid of this guy. The, the leaders and the chief priests and the rulers, the same people who they've wanted him gone since the beginning because he threatened their power. He says, forgive them. The soldiers who are beating him and mocking him and take a crown and they force it onto his head. I mean, he's bloody and bruised because these guys have just demolished him with their hands. He looks down from the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. Amazing that Jesus says this. What are the lessons about forgiveness that Jesus teaches us here? If you're following along on your notes, this is the first point. The first point is this is bigger than me. No matter the wrong, there's something larger going on. This is bigger than me. Why does Jesus say, Father, forgive them? Why does he say that? Why doesn't he say, I forgive you? Why doesn't he say, Father, forgive them? Well, the reason he does this is even though the wrong was directed at Jesus, even though the wrong that they committed involved Jesus, what he's saying in saying, Father, forgive them, is the wrong is not confined to Jesus. It's bigger than him. It goes beyond him. An example of this would be um, the O.J. Simpson trial. The O.J. Simpson murder trial, many of us remember this, um, is very public. We remember watching the Bronco driving down um, the freeways and watching that on the news. We remember watching the trial as it happened live. But it's kind of come back into popular opinion or the popular view of the public recently. One of the reasons is there's a television show, cable show, called The People versus O.J. Simpson. Um, somebody earlier when I was talking about this, they said, we already know what happens. <laughs> so anyways, The People versus O.J. Simpson, it's a show. Another thing is they found a knife on the property, and so that's come back into the view of the public because it's been a news story lately. So we're remembering this trial. But why is it the people versus O.J. Simpson and not Nicole Brown Simpson versus O.J. Simpson? Why isn't it the victims versus O.J. Simpson? The victims are the one that took the brunt of the crime. So why isn't it them versus O.J. Simpson? Why is it the people? Well, the reason is, is because the one who commits the crime, the crime is really against the society who set up the laws. The people who decided this is the standard by which we are to live. These are what we're supposed to do to one another. So when somebody violates that, when a crime's committed, the, the, yes, there are victims, but the real issue is really between the society that put those laws into effect. So it's the people versus the one who broke the law. Behind every society and culture, there is a lawmaker, and that lawmaker is God. He's the one who created this planet, and in creating this planet, he owns it. And as the owner of it, he determines the standards by which we're supposed to live. He determines how we're supposed to treat one another. He determines all that because he owns it. He is the lawmaker. So any wrong that's committed is ultimately against him. Yes, there are victims. Yes, people get caught up in that. I don't want to minimize that. But the reality is it's ultimately against God. Jesus reveals that when Jesus says, Father, forgive them. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, this is much bigger than just me and you and what has happened here. This is actually something that you need to go and you need to get right with the Father. So if we're going to forgive, what we need to realize is forgiveness starts when we realize that this is bigger than me. And we also need to realize that my wrongs and the wrongs of others are really against God. And this brings us to the second point. And the second point is I need to get out of the way. That's the second point. I need to get out of the way. This is really what forgiveness is. It's getting out of the way. See, when we choose to hold on to something, when we don't get out of the way, we choose to hold on to something, what we're saying is that this is just about me. 
That's what we're saying. We're saying whatever this wrong was, it, it's really just about me. Well, we just looked at, no, it's much bigger than you. It's really God's involved in it because he's the one who's over all this. So it's not just about you. And a good thing for me to remember is when we come to the end of our lives, we're all going to line up before God and we're all going to give an account for what we've done. And here in this life is our only chance to get it right, to clear up that relationship before we stand before him. But there's not going to be a secondary line. If this is God's line, okay, everybody's in this line, you know, giving account for what they've done. There's not going to be a secondary line over here for Elliot. Okay, this is Elliot's line. If you've wronged Elliot in this life, line up here. No, that's not going to happen. There's only going to be one line, and that line is in front of God. So when we forgive, what we're doing is we're getting out of the way so that other people can see what's really going on, and they have a chance. Their only chance is here but they have a chance to then get that right. So we're removing ourselves saying, okay, I'm going to forgive. I'm realizing this is much bigger than me, and I'm going to get out of the way. What's interesting is how Jesus does this in the final week, particularly with how he interacts with Judas, the one who betrays him. We talked about Judas some last week, but I want to look at him even more this morning because one of the things that we do when we um, talk about Judas or we remember him or he's portrayed in films is he's a monster or he's some kind of a double agent that kind of infiltrates the ranks of the disciples and the whole time he's set on betraying Jesus. That's this image we get out of him. But when you sit down and you actually read about him and you read through the different stories in the Gospels, what stands out is not that he's a monster, but his ordinariness is actually what stands out when you read through the stories of the man. What you find is that just like the other disciples, he was selected by Jesus. He's handpicked, just like the other 12. What you find is that he actually had the trust of the other disciples. They all trust him. He was in charge of the money. Actually, they thought the best of him. When, when he's at the Last Supper and Jesus makes it really clear, Judas is going to be the one who betrays me. He, he spells it out very clear. This is the guy who's going to betray me. And then he says to Judas, what you're going to do, go and do quickly. This is what John says about that. The, the disciples just didn't understand it. This is what John records. He says, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. So Judas gets up and he goes out and they're sitting there going, oh, what a great guy. I mean, he's going to go help some people out. You know, he's going to go do some good in the world. That's what they're thinking. They're, they've given him their, they trust him with the money. They, they believe the best about the guy. That's what they see when they see Judas. Actually, if you look at when Judas actually goes to the high priests to agree to betray Jesus, what's fascinating is that happens almost immediately after a situation where Jesus is in the town of Bethany. And a woman comes up to Jesus and she's got this jar of perfume and she pours it over Jesus' head. She's anointing him. And the other disciples, they're like, whoa, 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 like we could have used this money and we could have given it to the poor or something like that. That's what they're thinking. But Jesus corrects them and he says, actually what she did is she's preparing me for burial. And he tells them this at Bethany during the final week. So if you think about Judas, he's in charge of the money. We know he's stealing. Actually, in, in the account where the lady pours the oil over her head. That's where we get the, over Jesus' head, that's where we get the information that Judas is stealing. So he's already taken something off the top for himself. So he's sitting there thinking, okay, Jesus is going to be king. Jesus is going to set up this kingdom, and I'm the treasurer. And I want to make sure that I get what I can in the meantime. So he's pulling some money out for himself. He's stealing. And then he's thinking, okay, well, what am I going to get out of this if I'm the treasurer in this kingdom? Then all of a sudden, the king that he's following says, you know what? I'm getting ready to die. So instead of this big kingdom where Judas is the treasurer, 
my king's going to die? Seriously? I need to get as much out of this as I can. Could it have been that then when he goes to the high priests and what he actually says is, he says, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it if I hand Jesus over to you? And so they agree to about $20,000 in today's money. And he goes to him and he's like, hey, what can I get out of this? My, the guy I thought was king is apparently going to die. And I got to get something before this ship sinks. So he goes to the high priest and he agrees to betray Jesus. And then what's really fascinating is um, the words that are used to describe how Satan influenced Judas. If you look at those, uh, we looked at this one last week, John 13, 2. It says, the evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So the devil prompted Judas to betray Jesus. The word prompted there has the idea of to put an idea into the heart, to put a thought into the heart. So could it have been that Judas, he's already kind of got this desire, I want to get as much out of this as I can. This ship's sinking. You know, I can see it going down. This isn't going to end up the way that I want it to. All of a sudden, this thought pops in. Well, you know what? This is what you could do to get as much out of it as possible. See, when you read about Judas, what you see is you see a man that just followed his desires wherever they took him, and he had no idea who was influencing those desires. He had no idea where those thoughts were coming from. It just, oh, that sounds good, so I'm going to do that. That's the image you get of Judas as you read about him. Then this is how Jesus responds to Judas when they meet in the garden, when Judas has already betrayed Jesus with the money, and now he's coming to have Jesus arrested. Matthew 26 says this, Now the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Then Jesus says this, friend, do what you came for. Friend. Probably not the word that I would have selected. Probably would have had something much more choice for Judas in that moment. But Jesus says, friend. I mean, you can almost sense the compassion in his voice. Jesus is not judging him. Judas, Jesus is saying, friend. What Jesus is saying when he says this to Judas is he's getting out of the way. He knows good and well what Judas has done. He knows what he's doing. But Jesus is deciding, you know what, instead of standing here and making this an issue, I'm just going to get out of the way with hopes that Judas will realize what he's done and be able to clear this up. Actually, just a few verses later in the next chapter, this is what it says, Matthew 27. It says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. See, Jesus, or Judas, he's led around by his desires. He has no idea who's influencing those desires. Something pops in his head, something comes up in his heart. He's like, okay, let's do it. That makes sense to me. Sees the ship sinking, decides to betray Jesus. That's what's going on with this man. And when he sees what he's done, when the curtain's been pulled back and he sees the truth of, wow, this is where my actions have gotten me. This is where my best thinking has led me to. It says that he's seized with remorse. The sad thing about Judas is even though he sees the truth, Jesus gets out of the way so Judas can see the truth. The sad thing about him is that he dies believing that he's unforgivable. He dies unwilling to accept the forgiveness that Jesus brings. But the thing is, is Jesus got out of the way so that Judas could see the truth, have the opportunity to get it right before, with the Father before the end. The reason that I wanted to show Judas the way that the Bible describes him, and not as this monster, is because when Jesus looked at Judas, Jesus saw a human. Jesus saw a man, a man who let his desires take him wherever they wanted to go. 
He had no idea who was influencing those desires, a man who made a terrible decision, but Jesus saw a man, a man just like the other disciples. We forget that the other disciples all fell away. Jesus says that they will. Peter publicly denied him. We forget this, but Jesus saw a man just like everybody else, so Jesus says, friend. See, what we'll do oftentimes when people wrong us, and one of our excuses for not forgiving is when people wrong us, we'll make them out to be a monster. They're a villain. They're unforgivable. How could you ever forgive that person for what they've done to you? Well, and if they're a monster that's undeserving of forgiveness, well, then we can justify our holding on to that bitterness or whatever it is, that resentment. But when Jesus sees Judas, arguably one of the greatest villains in human history, when Jesus sees him, Jesus says, friend, because Jesus sees the man in need of the forgiveness that he came to bring. So it's the same for us. When people wrong us, we need to realize that, okay, this is an individual who, for whatever reason, they've done something wrong, but this isn't somebody who's unforgivable. Even for the most heinous crimes, this isn't somebody who's unforgivable. This is somebody who God came to die for. And so what I'm going to try to, what I'm going to decide to do is realize this is much bigger than me. This is between them and God, ultimately. And so what I'm going to decide to do is I'm going to get out of the way, because this is their only chance to get it right with the Father before they're separated for all of eternity. That's what Jesus models in the final week. This brings up a question, though. So we've looked at what Jesus did and why he did it. But the question is, how do you get out of the way? Very practical terms. How do you get out of the way? So that's what I want to look at now. I want to look at the plan of forgiveness, how to get out of the way. So that's where we're at now. When it comes to the plan of forgiveness, there's a plan A and there's a plan B. Plan A is always the first option. When it comes to a wrong that's been committed, we always go to plan A. And plan A involves two people coming together, agreeing on what the wrong was, making amends, clearing it up, and then moving forward. We only go to plan B if plan A can't happen. So let's look at plan A first. Plan A is this, to be reconciled. That's what plan A is, be reconciled. This is if someone wrongs you or you wrong someone. It doesn't really matter who did the wrong. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Jesus talks about this. And this is what it means to be reconciled. This is how you go about doing this. It starts with you agree on the wrong. That's the first step. If there's an agreement, if we agree on what the wrong was, then we can make amendments. We can, there can be restitution in the relationship. If we can't agree on what the wrong was, then it really stops there and reconciliation can't be pursued. The second part is you make amends. So after you agree on the wrong, you make amends. See, if I, um, let's say this afternoon, I um, go overdraft on my bank account. Let's say I take out $100 that's not there. Well, the bank is probably going to, I'm probably going to get a text message immediately saying that I overdrafted. But then what I need to do, realizing what I've done, I then need to go and I need to make amends. I need to put money back into the account, and there's probably fees and other stuff attached to that. But I need to put that money back in because I've overdrafted. Well, that's what making amends is. You go and you make restitution with whatever the wrong is. The challenge for us is oftentimes the wrongs that we commit are relationally. They're against each other. So if I, let's say I'm hangry, and so I say something mean to my wife, well, how much money is that? Five bucks, you know, for each mean word, you know, 10 bucks, 100? I don't know. I mean, how many flowers? You know, how many roses is that to then, okay, here, I'm going to make restitution. So how many roses do I have to give in that situation? Because that's a relational hurt, because that's a hurt of the heart. You can't use money. You can't use flowers. What you've got to do is you've got to go, and you've got to ask them to cancel the debt. That's what asking for forgiveness is. It's going and saying real specifically, hey, this is what I've done. I've done X. 
I said this to you and it was wrong. Will you forgive me? In other words, will you cancel the debt? So when we deal with hurts of the heart, when we deal with relational wrongs, what we have at our advantage is to go and ask for forgiveness. There's, there's nothing quantifiably physical that we can do, like an amount of money or an amount of roses that will overcome that. All we can do is go and ask for forgiveness in those situations. If we do that, if we come to an agreement, if we make amends, then what that means is we can move forward. That really, it kind of puts us on level footing because we've agreed on what the wrong was. We've cleared it up. We were specific about it. We cleared it up. Now we can move forward because we're on level footing. This is kind of where trust can start to grow again. Sometimes we confuse forgiveness and trust, but trust, after, after we've forgiven, then trust can grow. Sometimes we assume that, okay, well, if I forgive, then automatically we're right back in the right standing. Well, it depends on what the wrong was. Sometimes it takes time for that trust to grow. Sometimes that trust won't grow, but we can start to grow trust and the relationship can move forward once we're on level footing, once we've come together, we've made amends, we've agreed on the wrong, then we can decide to move forward with the relationship. If we don't do this, if we just say, you know, if we just say, let's say, I'm, we throw I'm sorry at it. That's usually what we do. We throw I'm sorry at it. So instead of admitting the wrong, we say I'm sorry. But I wouldn't do this if you were in conflict, but have you ever asked the question, well, what are you sorry for? I mean, if you're mad at somebody and they say, I'm sorry, I wouldn't be like, well, what are you sorry for? Because that might make it a lot worse. But they could just be sorry that they got caught. You know, hey, I'm just sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that you're so immature that that would affect you. You know? I mean, really, what are you sorry for? I mean, it's just if, hey, I feel something that I probably shouldn't feel, and I'm sorry. You know, it's just so vague. It, there's no, there's no, you can't move forward because it doesn't put you on the same place. And it's kind of like this restaurant I worked at in college. Um, it was a really good restaurant, really popular. It was kind of a small venue, and so we didn't have a lot of room, so we made use of the space we had, and we had this salad bar, crazy popular salad bar, and uh, it really, working there ruined salad bars for me, so I'll try not to do it for everybody else. <laughs> but um, the salad bar, the way it was set up, you had the, the salad dressing, and then behind the salad dressing, they had like cheese and broccoli and like all the things you stack on top of your salad, like the, you know, the eggs and stuff. So that's all behind the dressing, and there would be these huge lines of people on, like, Friday, Saturday nights. And what would happen is people are filling up their salad plates. They would drop a lot of stuff in the salad dressing. And as the employees, we would just kind of walk by, and you're supposed to scoop it out, I know. But we wouldn't. We would just kind of stir it up. So the Thousand Island dressing, I'm telling you, Thousand Island dressing at the end of the night, it just didn't scoop right. You know, you would go in, it's just like the ranch looked a whole lot more like blue cheese. I mean, it had, like, clumps in it. It was kind of red because beets would get dropped into it, so it kind of had this pink tint to it. But that's what I'm sorry does. I'm sorry is just kind of like, I'm just going to kind of act like this didn't happen. I'm just going to kind of stir this up and hope that nobody notices. But, you know, then you end up with some really nasty-tasting ranch that nobody wants to eat. I mean, I'll be, most times we visit my parents, and my wife can attest to this, we go to that restaurant because I like that restaurant so much. I will not eat at the salad bar. There's no way. I asked the waiter, hey, could you get me a salad from the back? Because I'm not going to that salad bar. Because I know what happens at that salad bar. And I don't want anything to do with that salad bar. But that's kind of what we do when we just say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, we just kind of stir it up. And nothing's, it doesn't fix anything. Nothing is, nothing's different so that we can move forward with trust. It's, it's just worse than what it was when we found it. And so what we do, because we're pursuing reconciliation, is if we make a mess, we're going to clean that up. 
and we're going to go and we're going to do what it takes to try to be reconciled. Now, there are situations and times where you can't be reconciled, where this can't happen. You're not going to agree, and you can't make amends. And so this brings us to plan B, the plan B of forgiveness, which is to decide to forgive. This is actually the plan that we see Jesus demonstrate in both of the examples that we looked at, to plan to forgive. And both the examples that we looked at, if you think about when Jesus was hanging there on the cross, the crowd is in no mood to be reconciled to him. The crowd is in, they wouldn't even admit that they did anything wrong. Judas even. I mean, when they're standing there in the garden and Judas is betraying Jesus, there's no way Judas is going to admit that he did something wrong and then make amends in the relationship. So because plan A couldn't happen, what Jesus does and what Jesus demonstrates is just, you know what? I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to decide to forgive. Realizing that it's bigger than him, Jesus simply says, with Judas' friend and with the crowd, he says, Father, forgive them. He gets out of the way. He decides to forgive. The challenging thing with this one, with plan B, deciding to forgive, is we really like justice. We want there to be justice. If somebody wrongs us, we think there should be a response. They need to realize that what they did was wrong. They need to get it. They need to understand what they've done and not do this to anybody else or me ever again. And so we kind of put ourselves in the place of judge to make sure that they get it. We're going to make sure they understood that what they did was wrong. And so one of the ways we do this is we'll put pressure on the person. We'll try to manipulate them. We'll bring it up. We're trying to get them to understand that what they did was wrong. So we'll put this relational pressure. And at best, all that relational pressure can do is get them to conform for a short period of time. So for a short period of time, they might go along with the pressure. But what's going to happen as soon as that pressure is gone, they're just going to bounce right back to the shape that they were in before we put the pressure on them to begin with. See, relational pressure, trying to make them get it, doesn't work. We can't make anybody get it. We can't change them. And so honestly, it's just a big waste of time. It's going to make the relationship worse. We can't make them get it. But what we can do, this is a scary thought. What we can do is we can get in the way of them getting it. See, if we just keep going at it with them and trying to get them to get it, they're going to see us. And we're not going to get out of the way and they're not going to be able to see God. So what we do because we value forgiveness and we want them to see who God is, we say, okay, you know what? I'm going to forgive and I'm going to get out of the way. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians that talks about this, talks about kind of the reason that forgiveness is so important and why we need to do it. And I want to look at it. This is what it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul is writing and he says, Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So what Paul's talking about here, Paul is writing this. This is the second time he's written to this church. The first time he wrote, that's 1 Corinthians. And he brought up an issue with them in the first letter. And he, he told them, okay, we're aware of this situation where there's a guy who's living in public sin and everybody knows about it. And he's bragging about it. He's boasting about it. He's prideful. So what you need to do is you need to deal with this situation. So the church does, and apparently the man repents. They come and they're able to be reconciled. So what Paul says, he says it five times. He says, forgive, forgive, forgiven, forgive, forgiven. He says, okay, I mean, could he make it more clear? What, what are they supposed to do? forgive the guy. That's what he's saying loud and clear to him. The reason he says this, in order that Satan might not outwit us. 
when you, when you outwit somebody, I mean, if you think of you're like playing a game with them and you try to outwit them, you're trying to outsmart them, keep them from seeing something, keep them from seeing a play or a move that you have coming down line. Really, you're trying to keep them from seeing reality. So that's what the enemy is going to do. He's going to try to keep us from seeing reality. He's not surprised by the fact that this isn't really about us and them. This is about us and God, or this is about them and God. He's fully aware of that. He's fully aware of the fact that at the end of our lives, there's not going to be an Elliot line, but there's going to be one line, and that's going to be a God line where we're called to account. He's fully aware of this. So what he tries to do is he tries to get us stuck in some kind of relational conflict, something that will prevent us from seeing the truth. So he's going to outwit us. He's going to try to outsmart us. It says this is a scheme of his. This is an approach. If I can get them stuck in relational conflict, which we all know, this stuff can go on for decades. I mean, small things, things where at the end of it, we're asking the question, what was I mad about to begin with? I don't even remember what started this. But if he can get us stuck in that, then what he's saying is, yes, I got him. I got him. They don't see the big picture. They don't see that this is between them and God. They don't see the fact that at the end of their lives, they're going to stand before him and their only chance to get it right is now. They're just sitting there yelling at one another, upset. And so he's going to throw in some kind of emotion. He's going to bring up some thought that gets us pitted at one another. He's going to try to muster up some kind of conflict. He's going to outwit us, try to scheme his way around us seeing the truth, block us from seeing that so that we're stuck in some kind of conflict, just spinning our wheels when the whole time the truth is right there in front of us. That's what he's going to do. That's what his scheme is, one of his schemes. I, I think of a good illustration of this is it's kind of like when you, um, if in battle, they'll use like smoke screens or smoke bombs on the battlefield. And what they'll do is two enemies or, or two forces are coming together, and so they'll use smoke to try to create confusion. So, I mean, it's like if you could imagine on this stage, if we were to fill this stage with smoke, you know, I wouldn't be able to see very far. I'd probably only be able to see about arm's distance. And so what am I going to fight with? I'm going to fight with whatever's directly in front of me. But if the smoke is clear and I can see what's really going on, then I can make wise, intelligent decisions based on what is true. But as long as there's smoke, I don't know what's going on. I'm confused. So he's going to bring up this conflict, much like it would be a smoke screen or a smoke bomb in battle, just to create confusion. So we're sitting there fighting something that's not even really the real issue. So what we do and we forgive, I mean, imagine if I open those doors and those doors and put one of those massive industrial fans that blows so loud that you can't even hear me talk. I mean, imagine if I put one of those right here and turned it on. That smoke's just going to blow right out of the room. And then everybody can see what's going on. And then we can see what's true. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is bringing out the large industrial fan and putting it on the situation and blowing away the smoke so that we can see what's really going on. So we can see, okay, you know, this is much bigger than me. This isn't really about me and the other person. I might have gotten caught up in this, which is unfortunate. This is really between them and God. So I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to blow the smoke out of the room. I'm going to, even, you know, even though it happens over and over and over and over again, I'm just going to keep choosing to forgive. Because I realize this, for some, this is their only chance to get it right. Their only chance. So I'm going to get out of the way because this is really between them and God. And I want them to get it right. That's, that's what love is. We want them to get it right because we know that we're all going to stand before him and Jesus Christ is our only defense. So we want to know what's true. So we want to get rid of the smoke. So get out the fans of forgiveness. Blow the smoke away. So we can see this is between us and God. This is much bigger than me. So I'm going to choose to get out of the way. That's what Jesus modeled for us. It's the example he gave us to live by.
I've got a couple of next steps for you this morning. These are on your connection card and on your message insert. Um, the first one is just to choose to forgive. We went through the plan of forgiveness. So I would look at that. I would think about a situation that you find yourself in, and then what can you do um, to choose to forgive or actually to ask for forgiveness in that situation. Another thing that I would encourage you to do is invite somebody to Easter. We've got these Easter invite cards. They're on the tables in the back. They're also on the name tag tables when you go outside. Easter is next Sunday. There are four services. We have our three morning services and then a five o'clock service in the evening. We invite everybody to come to. I've already seen what Bevan's going to do for this message. It's an awesome message. He's starting a message series titled Whiteboard Wisdom, where he's going to give visual illustrations to help us understand kind of these big ideas in the Bible. And he's going to start with how can we be reconciled to God? Today, we talked about how we can be reconciled with each other. But next week, Bevan's illustration is on how we can be reconciled to God. So we encourage you to take these cards, invite your friends, your family, invite people to come back and join us next Sunday on Easter. And then the final announcement, or the final next step that you have for today is um, you probably noticed this growth group card in your program when you walked in. We're actually starting growth group signups today. I know with everything we've got going on, um, they haven't gotten a ton of publicity. But on the back of the connection card are all the groups that you can choose from. And then on this little card are the types of groups that we have to offer, the different studies that we've got going on. It, at Seabreeze, growth groups are really at the heart of what we're doing. And I, I can tell you from experience, I mean, Bevan and I or whoever's speaking, we can get up here and we can give a message that, you know, people really enjoy. But the real change happens when we start to connect with other people, when, ex- when we see their example in everyday life, we see how you actually live this stuff out and we receive encouragement to do it ourselves. That's where the real change comes in life. So that's why we value growth groups so much. and We love to see everybody get connected with one. And then the final thing, um, kind of have some special guests with us today. You probably noticed the connection banner over here on the wall. We have a team of students and leaders from Germany um, with us. There are ministry partners in Germany. They're doing ministry on college campuses. They're trying to advance the message of Jesus throughout Europe, Europe on the college campuses. And so they're with us, just hanging out with us for the weekend, learning about what we're doing We send teams over there during the year. So right after we sing our final song, you can head over there, get more information about their ministry, welcome them, um, thank them for what they're doing. Also, they can tell you more about what they're doing. So we can do that right after our final song. So if you'll join me in prayer, the band will come up and we'll sing our final song together. Father, I thank you for this Sunday, um, for Palm Sunday and the beginning of Holy Week and everything that we remember during this week. I thank you. Um, for Easter, what we're going to celebrate next week, the fact that you, Jesus, conquered death and that you proved once and for all that you were, in fact, God in flesh, and you're the one that offers forgiveness. It's through you. It's through your sacrifice that was sufficient to bring forgiveness to all. I thank you for that. Jesus, I thank you for the examples that you left us, examples where you not only forgave the people who were supported you, but the people who were the most opposed to you, the people who took issue with you, the people who wanted you dead, but you still chose to forgive. God, as your followers, I ask that we would do the same. We would take this example, take it seriously, and we would love the people around us by choosing to forgive, by choosing to get out of the way, realizing that this is something that they need to get right with you, and in doing that, we would communicate to them how valuable they really are. So God, I pray that you would help us to see the person and not just see the wrong or the hurt. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this group that you've brought together, and I pray that you would bless us. In your name, amen.